get a call from Barry Gesser. Barry Gesser's Jordan Belfort's right-hand man. This was my first direct association as, you know, a businessman with the mob. And I got a call from my mother who told me that the FBI had just come to the house wanting to talk to me. What kind of money were you making at the time? I'm making probably 50000 a month. In 88, you're making fifty. And I beat that car from beginning to end, from, from the sides to the windows to here. the mirrors. I had an early nickname where I was the guff, meaning I took no guff from nobody because I guess I was compensating for my size, always trying to prove myself, sure. be good with my hands. This is probably going to be a different angle of the Mafia mob interview, uh, but you're going to appreciate this one because I'm sitting with a man who at one point in 2003 went away for a $100 million stock scam. But if you take him back when he was working with the Gambino family back in the days, the way he got started was with a firm called J.D. Uh, F.D. Robert Securities, which he used to compete with a name you may know, Jordan Belfort from Wolf of Wall Street. And he went from there to working with the Gambino family to working with Mikey Scars at a year where the Senate subcommittee talked about the mob was getting somewhere on $10 billion from the stock market, from the stock market. He hasn't done any interviews except for one from UK with Trevor McDonald. This is his first long form interview he's doing. He's wanted to be low key for a specific reason. So with that being said, Sal Romano, thank you so much for being a guest on Value Team. My pleasure, Patrick. So I read your Wikipedia. I read the articles. No interviews except for uh, Trevor McDonald, the one you do with, uh, you know, the mafia woman, the wives and children, all that stuff. Why have you not done an interview with anybody? Uh, I mean, that being said, it's not something that I'm proud of, nor do I really want to talk about it. I still have family members. But, you know, with me, it's about controlling the narrative a little bit. So I don't like the way I'm portrayed in some areas or some respects. So it's probably a good time in my life now to possibly talk about it. Sounds good. So, you know, why don't we go back? Just walk us through how you came up the streets and how you got connected with F.D. Roberts and how you got into the securities industry. Tell us your story. Sure. Uh, I was born in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn. I know most of the wise guys yes. you talk to are. And uh, after that, we moved to Staten Island, which literally, you know, everybody goes from, from Brooklyn to Staten Island, ultimately Jersey, and then they migrate to other areas. So I was raised in Staten Island, an area called New Springville. A lot of big mafia influence there. You had Sammy the Bull Gravano, you had Frankie DeChico, you had Sonny Saccone. You had a lot of, you know, wise guys that came from Brooklyn and moved to Staten Island. So it was always in front of us. It was always there. It was always, you know, looking at the cars and the jewelry and the money and the power. So it was always mm. in front of us. It was a way of life for us. And my Did you see everybody? Like, did you see Sammy and the, did you see them? Yes. I mean, I was yeah. a little kid. But, yeah, of course we saw them and they were a great influence on us. Plus, the distance between Staten Island and Brooklyn is like 20 minutes. So we were always in Brooklyn. My family remained in Brooklyn. So we were just always around it. It was always in front of us. What was the reputation like? What reputation did the mob, I mean, we've obviously, we've seen many different versions, stories. What was the reputation, even as a kid? Who was Sammy? Who was the cheek? Who were, who were these guys in the streets? Well, it goes back long before Sammy. You know, with my family, it was Carlo Gambino and Paul Castellano. What happened was my grandfather on my mother's side, who's a legitimate business, a legitimate butcher, and he came to this country in the 30s, and he was sponsored by Carlo Gambino and Paul Castellano. So ultimately, they end up bankrolling him in a few butcher shops in Harlem when there was a strong mob influence and Italian influence in Harlem. 
So he had butcher shops and he was a butcher. And I don't remember him ever mentioning Carlo to me, but it was always Big Paul, Big Paul. He would mm, always mention that. It. So my mom was Sicilian. My dad was uh, from Naples. Uh, his family was from Naples. So I was half Nobly Don, half Sicilian. And growing up in Brooklyn, my father, you know, as a kid was always in a gang. So he was very good with his hands. He was a muscular guy, Your a big was. guy. Oh, yeah. He was definitely a genuine tough guy, but he was also very educated. So he preached education to his children. So he had the best of both worlds. He was very smart. He was an accountant. And he, he was good with his hands. So everything with him was making sure his children were educated and could handle ourselves physically. And I was never the biggest or the strongest, but I always thought of myself as being very tough. I was always fast. I never backed down to a fight. I had an early nickname where I was the guff, meaning I took no guff from nobody because I guess I was compensating for my size, always trying to prove myself, sure. be good with my hands. And we were always exposed to it. So my dad had always done business with wise guys. As their accountant, he had card games. He was always a Shylock, a bookmaker. So Frankie DeChico was always in my home when I was a kid. And he was a powerhouse. So with us, forget about Queens and Gotti and anything that was going on in Jersey or the West Side with the Genovese. It was always the Gambino mm. family, and it was always in front of us. So that being said... My father got me a job at Lehman Brothers in 1985. And this is before it was Shearson, before it was American Express. This is when Lehman Brothers was the preeminent That's investment right. banking firm yep. in the world. You would make a cold call and tell a, a prospect that you were calling from Lehman Brothers, Everybody they ran to the yeah. phone. But with that being said, I saw all the improprieties that were going on even there. Because at the time, we didn't even have fax machines. So there was no way to get news. So what Lehman Brothers would do, or any other brokerage firm for that matter, is they'd sell a stock, let's say, at $10, mm -hmm. and they'd print 14 They'd make $4 a share on it. So FINRA, who at the time was the NASD, they then you know, started implementing the 5% markup rule. But back then, there was no rule. So you would sell a client 85. today. Wow, what a time to be in. It was the best time. NASD, that's right. So you would sell a client today, yeah. and tomorrow they wouldn't know where it was trading until they ultimately opened up the New York Times and saw a quote in the newspaper. So they don't, they, they wouldn't even realize how overpaid they paid. And you know that's when you know statements like "if you can't net it, forget it" and churn them and burn them. That was all Lehman Brothers in you know the seventies. How did they 80s. get away with it at that time, though? Limited regulation. Got it. So the regulation was extremely necessary, obviously. Without a doubt. Okay. Without a doubt. Got it. And that being said, that How was where you were Lehman? Three years. Okay. And that was my first exposure to this. What a way to start, though. Yeah. But it just looked like the norm, not the exception. It looked like this is the way Wall Street business is done. So that being said, I left there after three years, and I worked for a small firm in Manhattan called Steinberg & Lyman, mm -hmm. which essentially was mostly healthcare venture capital. And I got exposed to that, and I studied and I learned as much as I could about the investment banking side, because that's the side I always wanted to be in. After I left there, we, me and my group went looking for a firm. We saw an advertisement in the local newspaper for a firm out in New Jersey, and I went there. They were promoting penny stocks. I had never even heard of a penny stock. But what impressed me was the money they were making for their clients. They were showing like 200% returns on their recent IPOs. Clients were making money, had no idea the quality of the company. I mean, how, how good can a company be if it's trading at pennies a share? So that being said, I signed on to work with them. Jordan, that you mentioned, was already an employee there. And 
you know, everybody that worked there was absolutely clueless. They were all young. They were all uneducated. They were, none of them had the experience I had. So it was so easy for me to rise in the ranks, being from Lehman Brothers, having the pedigree and the background and the training that I received was second to none. Got it. So within 90 days, I became assistant branch manager, which I wanted because they gave me an extra $5,000 a month for. Okay. And within five months, I became the branch manager. So that was the position that was coveted, and three or four guys jockeyed for it, and one of them was Jordan. I had very little interaction with him, but I thought he was a nice guy. And this is before, I think, any of his vices or anything, but he was a good salesman. What impressed me and what stood out is that he was head and shoulders above everybody else there. He was. Oh, you yeah, knew he it. was a terrific salesman. In what way? In, in what way? You could, the way he carried himself, okay. his professionalism, his knowledge of the market, and his salesmanship. Who was he with before? You, you were with uh, uh, Lehman, but who did he come from? I have no idea. Okay. I know Got about his past Got up it. until that point. Got it. And so were you guys competing against each other or no? You could say that. In other words, what the firm tried to say is in order to get the promotion, they would go with who they felt was the most qualified, but it really came down to production because the last thing upper management wanted to do was lose a rep that could take those positions to another firm and then ultimately sell those positions and drive the stock down. So I had by far the greatest position in the firm and I was, you know, by far the most talented. But the separated between me and everybody else was A, nobody was going to outwork me and nobody was going to outstudy me. Including Jordan. Yeah, I mean, Jordan lived far away. This was northern New Jersey and Jordan, I don't know if he lived in Long Island or Westchester, but he had a long commute. So I don't think he was going to put in the hours that I was going to put Got in. Did you guys so party I, together or no? No, 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 Never. nothing like well, that. You I guys were in know. the same office together. We were, yeah, we were two feet from each other. Get out of here! Yeah, so you're hearing him on the calls as well. Yeah, and he was talented. He was a good guy. So script. If you call me, what was a conversation like with the client? What, what do you what are you telling the client? What was a script like? Patrick, you and I had a conversation going back about a month ago. Mm-hmm. I told you I would only contact you if we had something exceptional. Yes. If you noticed in the recent newspaper, our returns have been over 150% on our IPOs. Mm-hmm. Although I don't have an IPO for you today, I have something really exciting. If you have a couple minutes, I'd like to share it with you. Sure. And then you get into your pitch. Now, the separator is I'm going to do that 400 times a day. I'm going to get there at 7.45 in the morning, and I'm not leaving until 9, 10 o'clock at night. Got it. So I'm going to outstudy you, and I'm going to outwork you. If I don't know my product, I'm the worst salesman in the world. If I know my product, there's nobody that can compete What kind of money me. were you making at the time? I mean, again, it's 1988, and I'm making probably 50000 a month. In 88, you're making fifty. So I'm 21 years old. It's a lot of money in 88. I'm 21, 21 years old. What's life like? Are you Have you started partying or not yet? I'm still living at home. I'm a kid. Uh, the partying thing wasn't that important to me because me and my wife, who's my wife now, uh, we've been together since I was 17. So I was already on my way to, you know, trying to get focused on getting engaged and having a family. So partying wasn't important to me. Establishing the career was primary. 37 me. years you've been together with your wife. Yes, correct. That's unbelievable. Four children. That's incredible. Ranging in age from 26 to 9. Holy moly. <laughs> Good. So you're still working. Good for you. Hard-working family. So you're making 50 a month. You're 21. You're not a party guy. You're staying home. You and your wife, you've been together since 17. You know, you become the branch manager five months later. You're, you're doing your thing. Jordan you, leaves. He resigns at that okay, point. Okay, so go from there. So now there's Jordan a, leaves. There's a mass exodus yes. at that point. Now, the mob influence that was there was a legendary Gambino gangster by the name of Joe Butch Correo. Who was working there? No, of course not. He's a major gangster. But the firm is on record with him. Okay, I got so it. So the way it went down is there are two principals of the firm 
Their names were Freddie Gagliardo and Johnny Perfetti. And the two of them, the way they dressed, the way they looked, the way they carried themselves, you could see gangster personification. So this was my first direct association as, you know, a businessman with the mob. Although it's been an influence in me since I'm a baby, now it's directly with me and I'm running the show here. So what happens is the security regulators ban them from the industry. So they get asked to leave. This is F.D. Roberts. Yes. Okay. So after they step down, a fella down here in Florida by the name of Lenny Tucker, legendary trader, he steps in as chairman, and he's the one that promotes me to branch office manager. So F.D. Roberts stays intact. Yeah. Except the, the people that were involved with the mob, they step away. They had to. They were banned from the industry. Got it. Okay. And I guess the prerequisite was the firm can remain open if those two fellas step away. Makes sense. So Joe Butch Correo's son, Vincent, was an employee there. The day I met him, I said, what do you do for a living? Big guy, too. He shows me his business card. I said, assistant to the chairman of the board. I said, okay. <laughs> so I looked at this. I said, I'm going to take this place over. This is mine. I'm Italian. Nobody can work like I do. Nobody knows this industry like I do. This was built for me. I had one requisite, and that's I want to open up in lower Manhattan. I want to be on Wall Street. So ultimately, we do open up on Wall Street. We were there two months. The feds raided the place. The place was closed down. And that was the end of that. So the whole thing lasted maybe 14, 15 months. So the 50K month lasted 14, 15 months at 21. Right. Did you do time or no? Would no, you- no, no. I was not party to any, any criminal it. liability because my time there, we had done no initial public offerings, no IPOs. Now, at that time, were you a license or are you serious? I was licensed, okay, yes. got it. I got my license there. You got your license at F.D. Roberts. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you go to Lower Manhattan, you're, you want your branch, couple months later, boom, what happens next? We're overlooking the Hudson, we had the most gorgeous office, we were ready to rock and roll, and then it ended. When it did end, uh, I was skiing up in Hunter Mountain in upstate New York, okay. and I got a call from my mother, who told me that the FBI had just come to the house wanting to talk to me. Telling her, tell your son to get home immediately, he's going to be indicted. This is for F.D. Roberts. I get an attorney, I go to two Gateway Plaza in Newark, New Jersey, and I walk in, there are three FBI agents, two agents from the Securities Exchange Commission, two from the NASD, two postal inspectors, and two representatives from the New Jersey Bureau of Securities. So they get me in this room and they corner me, asking me to wear a wire to testify against Freddie Gagliardo, Joe Butch Correo, Johnny Perfetti, and I said, am I being charged today with anything? And they said, no. I said, conversation's over. Got up, walked out, never heard another word. So it was a bluff. I called him out on the bluff, and I was fine. So next, after I leave F.D. Roberts, and this is where Jordan and I, our paths cross again, interesting enough. If you, if you looked at a breakdown of my securities license, you'll see after F.D. Roberts, there were two other firms that I signed on for. As I signed on, Both of them subsequently closed within days of me going there. So I said, okay, I'm done with the small firms. I'm going back to the big firms. There was a major Wall Street firm, been around 100 years, called Gruntle. Gruntle at the time was the third largest insurance company in the world. Insurance company. Yes, but they had a broker dealer. Got it. So I went to work in an office there. I get a call from Barry Gesser. Barry Gesser is Jordan Belfort's right-hand man. At At Stratton or? I didn't know at the time. But I believe it was Stratton Security. It's okay. owned by a fellow by the name of Jim Terramina. Barry calls me. He says, Sal, what are you doing? You're at Gruntle. Are you crazy? Gruntle's like Merrill Lynch. You can't own Merrill Lynch. 
let me tell you what I'm doing. You remember Jordan? So I said, yeah. He said, okay, I'm buying Stratton Securities. Jordan's buying a company called Oakmont out in Long Island. We're going to merge the companies. We want you to own. We want you to run the Manhattan operation with the possibility of being national sales manager. I said, let me come meet you. I drive into Manhattan. He's working at, I'm sorry, he's living at Trump Park, which made an impression on me Who's too. Who's he? Jordan is. Barry Gesser. Barry is. I okay. never see Jordan, nor do okay. I talk to him, and Got I never it. did to this day. So I drive to Trump Park. Barry's in his apartment. I walk in, and I said, Barry, there's no way in the world you're getting me this early unless you pay me up front. He says, what do you want? I said, $35,000, cash up front. He says, done. Meet me at the office tomorrow. We'll go over all the terms. I went there. I signed an agreement. He gave me the check. I said, I'll start on Monday. I deposited the check. In those days, checks took forever to cash. Ultimately, I start on Monday. On Tuesday, the check bounces. I says, Barry, you got to be kidding me, man. How do you let this check bounce? I mean, I'll, I'll leave in three seconds. You got to make good on this. Ultimately, he gives me another check or I redeposited it. I don't remember. It bounces again. Now he's with Jordan in an office in Long Island. I drive there like a raving lunatic and I'm banging on doors. Nobody will see me. Nobody will talk to me. I take a bat. I go under the building into the garage where his little red Mercedes convertible is. And I beat that car from beginning to end, from, from the sides to the windows to here. the mirrors, and just destroyed the car, left, and never again heard from Barry Gesser or Jordan Belford again. So that was it. And I had no dealings with Jordan there, only Barry. <laughs> That's literally the story. That is the truth. Okay. That was 1989. So, so 89, at this point, so the $35,000 check bounces twice. You go destroy car. They go on to merge Stratton Oakmont and then become Stratton Oakmont Securities. Has and he blown up yet? Has Jordan blown up no, yet? I don't even, to be honest with you, I don't even know. And I'm not bad-mouthing anybody yeah. and I'm not starting any yeah. fights. I, I've never even heard of that. I don't even know what they did. It wasn't like, you know, the most popular firm on the street. They were buried in Long Island doing their thing. You know, but the Wolf of Wall Street, I don't, I don't know anything You've about that. You've seen a movie, though? Yeah, of course. Okay. So you didn't know nothing about the stories of the parties, any of that stuff? No, but that, that was the norm. That was going on all over Wall Street. Yeah, but you Wall were not Street. in the scene either. So it's not like you were in the scene partying because you were more a guy that was a married no, guy. No, my office was. Okay, words. I got you. Once I blew up and did yeah. my thing, like we did the midget bowling. That was so, you. Yeah, but whether or not he did it too, I can't tell you whether he did. I remember a couple of my guys heard it on Howard Stern. Because Howard Stern had the, the midget bowler, so they, they had a party one day in the office and they did it. And I remember that the, the, the dwarfs with the helmets on, they kept banging into the elevator. So these guys were all crazy, so I was around it. I just didn't encourage it, promote it, or participate in most but of it. But your guys did it. All of them did it. Yeah, we had a we had a. How, what was it? How, what would you you pay these men? You pay them to do it? Like, uh, how does that work? It's like, yeah, hey, there was a two hundred bucks to. There was a service that provided this. So yeah, that's yeah. a business model. Yeah. What a Howard strange Stern business was promoting model. It. it was what his a thing. strange business model. Okay. Yeah. So so again, so, not to say Jordan was it real, but yeah. Whether you want to say the book or the movie was, you know, I don't know. How but, I mean, listen, there, there's footage of this guy partying like a madman, and there's a lot and of... And I'm sure they yeah, did. Yeah. So, so by the way, I, I watched the movie. 
uh, in Sherman Oaks at the Arclight Theater with my dad sitting all the way in the back. My dad was cracking up for two and a half straight hours. I said, what'd you think about the movie? Great movie. I'm like, okay, dad. Obviously, uh, the critics agreed because it was an Academy Award nominee. Yeah, I mean, and obviously, you have the lead guy. If you're going to have anybody playing the lead, it's it's not bad when you have Leo playing the lead. Of course, Ed Scorsese. Yeah, that's right. But what little time I spent with him, I, I liked him a lot. He was a very likable guy. And there were no vices at the time, you know? Sometimes that comes later. You've got to be patient. Vices show what up. What do I know yeah. about a guy that wants to do drugs and prostitutes? Sure. I know nothing about it. Sure. I've never done a drug in my life. So that's not your world. You're no. not one dad. No. Getting married early probably helped you out from not getting in too much trouble. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess, yeah. One of the things that helped me is I had no vices, none. I like to gamble, but I like to casino gamble, and I never gambled over my head, plus I had the money. I never sports gambled, never did drugs, didn't, you know, do the women thing, so yeah. it just wasn't in my, you know, universe, which kept me clean. Makes sense. Okay, so what happens next? So this now doesn't work out. Now I go out on my own. Okay. So now it's 1989, okay. and I open up one of the first franchise operations of a brokerage firm. So with that being said, it's like opening up a subway. I didn't own the broker-dealer, but I owned the franchise. The You're 22 or 23? 22. 22 years old. You open up your own place. How many, and that how many is called Financial Equity Resources. I hooked up with a, an investment banker okay. in Philadelphia by the name of Howard Appel, who was absolutely brilliant. And this was my foray into investment banking. This is how I learned to do investment banking. Like today, they call them SPACs. Yep. Special Purpose Acquisition That's right. Corporations. Back then, it was blind pools. Mm -hmm. So we can raise money off a strong management team and then go look for the acquisition. And then ultimately, that became the reverse merger play, and we were the kings of it. But the blind pool, did it have as bad of a reputation as SPACs do today no, or no? it was too early to have any bad news on social media. Nobody knew anything nothing. about it. The first one we did is, you may know the guy, a fellow by the name of Wayne Allen Root. No. Okay, he was like an early sports prognosticator, but a brilliant guy. He's yeah. got, you know... He's got his blogs and his YouTube thing going. He's pretty famous now. But at the time, it was, uh, it was sports prognostication. And that was the first blind pool we did. Got it. So, so 22 years old, you start your own place. You start doing uh, blind pools. You get the management team first. You get the money, and then you go find a business on what you guys want to do. What happens And we're doing next? a lot of reverse mergers, but we're doing quality deals. Okay. And I think that's what kept me under How the watchful. How big were the deals? How big were the deals you're doing? No, they were small deals. I, you know, the way it would normally work, if you want me to give you a little yeah. lesson or for your viewers, just understand what a reverse sure. merger is, the publicly traded company is there first. And what that publicly traded company is, is a company that's been stripped down. It might have filed Chapter 11. It might just be a depressed stock that's now trading at pennies a share. So what we would do is we would, let's say, seek a company looking for financing. So you come to me and you say, Sal, I need $10 million in cash. We would tell you, well, we're not just going to give you $10 million without having an already inherent exit strategy. Can we explain to you how to go public or that we could take it public? Sure. Once you're buying in on that, we'll use our own cash, maybe give you a million bucks in cash just to hold you over, and then we'll use that money or other money, additional capital, to buy that publicly traded company because it's trading at .001 cents a share and there's 50 million shares out there, which costs us nothing. So once we've bought and seized control of that publicly traded company, we're now taking that first and merging the operating entity into it. Taking the company public, hence the words reverse merger. The public entity is there first. Now, we have as much as 20, 30, 40% of that stock. 
the, the CEO and his management team has whatever, 20, 30, 40%. You have 10, 15, 20% of the already existing shareholders and you create that merger. Now the investment banking work comes in. If the stock's trading at a penny, you may want to do a reverse split, make it trade at a dollar. If it's trading at a dollar, make it trade at 10. Sure. But now we have paper. All of that is legal. The illegality part is as the public is buying, we're selling. And to, in order to do that, we have to, let's say, promote that stock, which is still okay, but it's the additional compensation given to a licensed stockbroker in the form of a cash payment under the table where he no longer has his investor's best interest at heart, but lining his own pockets. And that's the illegal part. Who else was doing that at the time? Everybody. Okay, so even the bigger guys were doing it. Well, I don't know about the bigger guys, but there's always been additional compensation. I'll give you an example. And this is the way Lehman qualified it. There used to be soft dollar deals. So the way Lehman used to work is when they used to get a syndication, and a yeah. syndication is for, let's say, a company going public. They're doing a hot IPO. Mm -hmm. And everybody knows it's going to be a hot IPO. So ultimately, what they would do is they would get a syndication or a set amount based on their production. So if Patrick was one of the best brokers, he's going to get 100,000 shares of this IPO. Now, there are uh, traders out there that covet, that want, that need your IPO. Now, they can't compensate you, so what they do is they give you an American Express card, and they say, enjoy yourself. Take your wife on vacation. Go to the bars. Go to the strip joints. Whatever it is, we got it. And there is the soft dollar deal, Got as it. it's called. Got it. So that form, or let, let's say the practice, has been around forever. It's got different names and, and maybe a different methodology, but the practice itself has been around forever. They're not doing it today anymore, though, right? I, well, how do I know? Yeah, I mean... I you, never talk about things I don't know. Yeah, FINRA's... Uh, they, you, you, did they have the gift limitation back in the days to clients or no? Possibly. Did they have the $100 remember. deal or yes, no? Yes, they did. Yeah, Absolutely. So they I did. would have forgot that existed yeah. if you didn't mention yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah, I th but by the way, we were talking about yeah, yesterday with a guy who was a doctor talking about opioids, how these doctors are making all this money because these big pharma companies are giving, uh, 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 you know, whining and dining these doctors. I said, if FINRA gave us a $100 limit for a client, maybe the pharmaceutical industry needs to have a gift limit that they're giving their doctors. But anyways, that's a complete different conversation. Very so, difficult to go after big pharma. It is tough nowadays. That's why, you know, they're doing what they're doing. Anyways, going back to this. So you're, you're 22, 23. You're running your shop. You're doing these blind And it's pulls. a very small shop. I got four or five guys. Okay, I got you. So walk me through what happens next. You're doing okay. these deals. Now, this is where the plot thickens for me. So now I'm making some money, decent money, more than money. More than FD? Yeah, on certain occasions I am, yeah. But it's mostly with the undisclosed additional commissions. 100 you know? a month? Yeah, and some months even more. Okay. So it depends. So you're making a mill a year? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So now at this point... Somebody approaches me and wants me to finance their finance company. It's, it's like an advance fee loan business. So I look at it. I do my due diligence. It's 100% legitimate. I agree to bankroll them. When I do, I throw my dad in there to watch my investment. He's retired at this point, so he's working there. And I throw my sister in there to answer the phones. So I have enough coverage in there, or at least I take solace that they know what they're doing. So ultimately, this becomes a criminal operation. In other words, overzealous sales reps using their fake names, charging advance fees up front. So I'm not a participant in it. I don't contribute to it. But at the end of the day, I'm as guilty as they are. The mm -hmm. money's going to me. Sure. 
So I'm, I'm a participant in this. So with that, I think we received something like 900 inquiries at the Better Business Bureau in 1990. Okay, so that encourages and precipitates a postal service investigation into the firm. I give an interview to the local paper. They knew it was coming. I explained to them nothing is more valuable to me than the integrity of my firm, my integrity, uh, what they're accusing us of is wrong, so on and so forth. Ultimately, I get indicted, my dad gets indicted, my sister gets indicted. Very clever on their part. Because my sister, although she's just answering the phone, is now a party to a conspiracy. Mm. Which means if I go to trial, I'll beat this in three seconds, but am I gonna risk her? And now, now I have a problem. So I ultimately have to plead guilty. That guilty plea is gonna give me a mandatory jail sentence, one. And number two, it's going to ban me from ever working on Wall Street again. So I agree. I plead guilty sometime in 92. And in 1993, I started a three-year sentence in Morgantown, West Virginia. This is the 30 months that you got? Correct. Okay, got it. So now when I get there, I'm in Morgantown, West Virginia. My father's there with me. And if I could be 100% honest, I'm having the time of my life. This was, this was like almost an organized crime training camp for me because all the gangsters are there. Everybody's talking about their war stories. They're talking about that. And there were some big guys there. There was the Jack Alone family from Detroit. And my buddy Jackie is now the boss of the Detroit partnership. They're there, guys from Pittsburgh, uh, Youngstown, Ohio, Steubenville, Ohio, a couple of guys from New York. So, you know, if you look at every crew, let's say the Colombians are three or four guys, Puerto Ricans are three or four guys, the Aryan Brotherhood are three or four guys. We were like 40 strong having the time of our life. So this is supposed to discourage me when I arrive back home. I mean, if, if the fear is prison, you could take that element mm. out of my life. And I'm the kid, I'm the baby. They all love me, I'm carrying things for them, I'm helping them. They, you know, everybody called me the kid, the kid. I was pretty popular, I was well liked, and we had a ball. So now I get released and I say to myself, okay, what's my next move? So before my release, I'm doing about six months worth of research trying to figure out what my next gig is. And it looks like the, he the hottest sector right now, due to the breakup of the baby bells, is long distance phone service. It looked like like you can make big money in commission long selling Long distance this. phone service? Are you talking like Excel communication? Are you talking yeah, about like phone cards? In other cards? words, because the baby bells broke up, yeah. so the phone cards is a big business, and sure. switching to long distance service. You use AT&T, well, I'm working for this company representing them. We could save you 20, 30%, and I'm gonna make a commission of up to 30% on your long distance Do you remember the company bill. names? Was Cherry it? Communications. Okay, got it. I remember it. Quest was doing it too, right? Quest, Quest was, was doing, doing it too. Few yeah. Firms. yeah, there was a few firms. Uh, LCP, which became, no, I'm sorry, uh, I forgot where it was, but that became a publicly traded New York Stock Exchange stock. It was a hot sector. So this is what I chose to participate in. So when I get home, I'm looking for bank, I'm looking for, you know, somebody to stake me. And a buddy of mine who was the nephew of a gangster by the name of John Gamarano, mm -hmm. he approaches me saying, look, my uncle will put this up because there's a pretty popular guy a strong businessman, strong wise guy. Well, he's not a wise guy, but he's not a made guy, but he's a gangster. His name is Joe Watts. And Joe Watts Joe is Watts. making a fortune in this. My uncle wants to put you two together. Yeah. So I meet with John Gamarano, Joe Watts. I go over this whole business model of what I'm looking to do. 
Joe Watts is making a fortune with the phone cards. So Johnny Gamarano agrees to stake me. He does. We open up the office. I start doing well. Johnny had always assumed that one way or another, I would go back to Wall Street in one capacity or another. So now the most interesting part of this in the trajectory of my life is now when I return home, less than three years later, everybody's a stockbroker. All of Bay Ridge, <laughs> all of Bensonhurst, everybody's a broker. And everybody is making a fortune off this new invention called the World Wide Web. This is 92, 93? 95 okay. now, 94, 95. So now it's the start or the advent of the internet. Guys are making a killing. So this is when all of these firms popped out of the woodwork and everybody was making a fortune. Now I'm still relegated to doing the long distance service. I got a nice business, I'm starting to ramp up, but the itch to get back to Wall Street was always there. So then my original partner, Howard Appel, the guy from Philadelphia, tells me about this one stock that he's working, it's called NAL Financial. And it's backed by even Wayne Heisinger here in Florida, who at the time was the chairman and the founder of Blockbuster Video, very wealthy guy. So I think one of the reasons why I was able to stay under the radar for so long, Patrick, is because we always did quality deals. Like investors always had a shot. There were nobody, there was no customer complaints. And if nobody's complaining, we're not on the radar. So with that said, we did this NAL financial deal and this was a hot deal. So my job was to find stockbrokers to promote it. And then additionally, I can compensate them under the table in cash. And we got off again. So now it's May of 1995. I have a wedding to pay for. That's when my wife and I were married. I needed money. I needed to jump back into this universe. And now I'm noticing all this mob influence on Wall Street. You had so many wise guys involved who had a piece of this, who had a piece of this, who had a piece of this. Any big names or no? Uh, yeah, you had... Uh, but it's probably better for me if I don't get that specific, if you don't mind. Well, were they bosses involved, underbosses well, involved, like the, the high ranking? The bosses are always involved. Sure. Yeah, you had, a lot of, you had a lot of skippers, a lot of okay. capos Got that it. were involved in this. The money was too good not to. And let me just say something. The mob has always been on Wall Street. It may be different capacity. I don't care if they, you know, they, they, they find a box of zero coupon bonds. But the point is the mob has always had an influence on Wall Street. Not to this degree, but the mob has always been there. Even today? Uh, what, how can I vouch for what happens today? Right. You know? Got it. But the mob is, uh, my assumption is yes. If there's money to be made on Wall Street, particular, particularly, you know, when you can corrupt a broker or two, then, you know? Makes sense. Okay, so... So now this is my first deal, and we make big money right off the bat. This is the NIL. NAL. 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 So now, a buddy of mine, my best friend for my whole life, who's working at Gruntle, okay, Gruntle decides to make a market, meaning they're going to support and trade NAL Financial. That's how legit this stock was. This is no penny stock. So I grabbed Joe, and I said, listen, your firm's already in this. Why don't you get out of there? I'll stake you. We'll open up a broker dealer under you. And you know, with these internet stocks and some of the deals that Howard and I are working on, we can make an absolute fortune. After a lot of coaxing and explaining, he finally agrees. So now I have my hands on a brokerage firm. Now, there's a lot of heat, there's a lot of pressure, there's a lot of investigation, so I don't want to put a bullseye on my forehead by owning a broker dealer. 
So I decided to go the franchise route again, the way I did earlier on. By owning the franchise, you take a lot of the, the watchful eyes of the regulators and the scrutiny off yourself, and it's more on corporate. So we did a couple of deals. It was a company called Argent Securities out of Atlanta, mm -hmm. J.P. Turner Securities, Shamrock Partners. We were able to keep changing the name on the door to avoid any kind of you know heat or problems, do quality deals, not be the direct owners of the firm, so the regulatory scrutiny goes to corporate, and we were able to capture a run. And the kind of deals we did were insane. I remember this one deal, <clears throat> it was called Metro Media China. When I started on Wall Street in 1985, there were four billionaires in the world. That's it, just four billionaires. Number four on that list was a guy by the name of John Kluge. John Kluge was the chairman of Metro Media. Now, we owned a shell company that was already in China, and John Kluge's team was trying to get to China to build out the cable infrastructure hmm. there. He couldn't get in there without buying something that, was already, that he could be more or less grandfathered in. So now we're in bed with the fourth richest man in the world. Ultimately, we put up, like let's say, a million bucks of cash, raised $10 million from the public. He put up a ton of money. The deal ends up blowing up. China throws all foreign ownership out of the country. Howard Appel calls me one morning. He says, listen, we're still getting fucked. We're just getting fucked by better quality people. That's the phone call. <laughs> we're still getting fucked. We're just getting fucked by better quality people. Again, the guy's the fourth richest billionaire in the world. So we always did quality deals. So even though that one didn't work out, I mean, you want to talk about a shot that we had there? You talk about building out the cable infrastructure in a country. So we always did quality deals, and we were able to capture a run as a result. But what made me really deadly, and this was probably the separator from, let's say, me and a Stratton Oakmont and blah, 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 is when you do this, I mean, this is a criminal enterprise. You're never going to trust everybody or trust anybody 100%, but there has to be some sort of trust. I'm paying you cash in a bag and charging you with going out and soliciting this stock. So how do you get these co-conspirators, Patrick? How do you develop these people? Well, you have a lot of wise guys that have a lot of kids around them and you have a lot of wannabe gangsters, and this was their way in by getting licensed or paying another individual to take the Series 7 for them, which became very popular, and now they're told to play ball with Sal. So now I have the mob recruiting the brokers for me mm. because nobody was ever going to shake me down. I wasn't going to pay protection money per se. That wasn't me, although I knew I needed protection. You can't run this enterprise. But I was too much of an ego, uh, too much of an egomaniac to say, hey, I need protection. Let me pay you. Scratch your ass. Produce something for me. Well, recruit brokers and I'll give you a piece. So if I'm paying the broker 20%, I'm going to pay the wise guys 10%. I'm going to slowly move up the ranks. I'm a guy that can keep his mouth shut. I don't fear jail. I can handle myself. I have the brains. I have the work ethic. This is a perfect marriage. And this was the way it all began. What kind of money did you start making at that time? When you say start or finish, I mean, well, I'm Give me the finish. What were you, at the end, what, what was My your peak? My biggest year was 99, I made 30 million. You netted 30 million in 99. It's always net, it's green. Yeah, net is, <laughs> net is the number that matters. So you're making 30 and 99, and, and what's, I mean, at that point, is this when you're living in your $5 million home, you got $2 million of, 
you're trying to figure out a place where to hide the cash. Yeah. And that's in other words, knowing that there's no way in the world this was going to last. My play and what was in my head is diversification, diversification, diversification. So I spread it out all over the place. Five million dollars, uh, excuse me, uh, four million dollars in restaurants, real estate, all under other people's names. So I was big with cash businesses and a lot of businesses. I don't care if it was a beauty parlor or a pizzeria. Every laundry. Everything. Got so it. my point is, I know ultimately this is going to end. So you're going to bring 2000 a week to my wife. You're going to bring $5,000 a month to my wife. You're going to bring 2000 a day to my wife. Knowing that I had this spread around, the plan was that if something happened to me, she would be well provided for. I paid cash for my home. The home wasn't under me or the business. So, you know, I did it. I made enough moves where I was trying to at least be able to provide for them if something bad happened for me. And then along the way, you know, we, we just started doing more and more deals and we started getting more and more popular. And, you know, you mentioned the Paul Anka thing before. And, yeah, it was just a crazy. How, crazy. What was it like? What was a, Are you partying hard? Are you yeah, having oh fun? Yeah. What, what are you guys the, doing? The like, time of my life. Of course, we're partying Give us hard. some stories. What were some of the things you guys were doing? I mean. You know, I'm hearing the story about fifty, sixty thousand dollars of cash being thrown at strip clubs. Like, what, what were some of the things that were happening? That was a stereotype for the broker during the time. That was never my thing. So, Not what did you guys? Choice. How did you guys party? Well, you know, one of the things I felt responsible for, and this is probably an illustration of how crazy I am, I got involved in the boxing promotion business, okay. and I wanted to be the biggest and best promoter in the world. But I felt almost charged with the responsibility of bringing it back to the wise guys, bringing it back to the Italians, which hasn't had a foothold on, on boxing since probably the early 1960s. So with that said, I, I, I invested in a promotion company, and then I really worked it. In other words, we had some famous fighters. We had Eric Harding, who fought Roy Jones Jr. for the light heavyweight championship. That was Roy's last fight under his HBO agreement. This is when Roy was still Roy. I had uh, James Toney. I had Mitch Blood Green, who fought Tyson. We had Bernard Hopkins, but I, I opted not to sign him. So, I mean, this was my thing. So this was a passion play. And this is how I end up meeting Paul Anker. Because what happened was I signed an agreement with ESPN where I was their exclusive ESPN2 Friday Night Fights. That was my show. So we would travel all over the country in these boxing matches. So my casino host at the Mirage was Steve Wynn's sister-in-law. It was Steve Wynn's wife's sister. Her name was Marianne. She introduced me to Paul Anka. Paul, Paul and I struck up an immediate friendship and relationship, and then Paul brings me a deal that to this day I'm sick to my stomach that I passed on. And I'll tell you that funny story. He tells me, he says, Sal, now I own an entertainment company, which, which we'll get to shortly. But he says, listen, he says, I got a kid. I want to sign the kid. He's got no money. He needs quick cash. So why don't you and I form a production company? So he comes up with the name Ronka Productions which is a derivative of Romano and Anka. So we formed that company with his attorney, whose name was Stuart Silfen, a very famous entertainment attorney. I have no attorney coverage in this deal at all. And I'm looking at the agreement and it's this thick. Anyway, the plan was, and David Foster was not famous the way he is today, but David Foster had an agreement with Sony where they were gonna sign him to a two album deal and I could get my money back almost immediately. So I said, well, how much do we have to put into it? And he said, it's like 400 grand. So I said, let me hear the CD. So he plays me this CD, it's Michael Buble. He plays me the <laughs> CD. So I said, I don't know, Paul, I mean, you know, big band music, uh, I mean. He said, Sal, I'm telling you, the guy's just like Harry Connick Jr. 
this, okay? Do we really need another Harry Connick Jr. ball? Listen to me, if there's one thing I know, Paul, it's music. This guy's got no shot. He'll never make it. Make a long story, that's a joke, but I never said that. Make a long story short, when I'm reviewing the contract, it's me putting up 400 grand. <laughs> he doesn't have one God. quarter in this. Yeah. So anyway, I said, Paul, I'm gonna pass on this deal. He loses his mind, hates my guts as a result of really? this. That deal blows up, and Michael Bublé becomes what Michael Bublé wow. is today. I was listening to Michael Bublé last night, putting my daughter down. I was, she wanted to listen to a Christmas <laughs> song, so I played a Michael Bublé Christmas song. He's got, the, he's got a very unique voice. How do you think we had a market for him? <laughs> <laughs> Paul sang a song, right? Sal's, Sal's yeah. way. He did something for like opening up one of your businesses. I don't know what no, it was. It was, was a, it, it was the business. This was my get-out deal, and we had a launch party, and we brought him in to, to sing it. So he changed the lyrics to, uh, no, I'm sorry, he changed, yeah, he changed the lyrics of my way and made it Sal's way. Sal's way. So, so go, let's go back to the mob. So you're doing stuff with, you, you get introduced through John, uh, uh, Johnny G. Gamarano, and then from there, something happens to John, I think he goes away, and then you get hooked up with Mikey Scars. What happens yes. to you? Walk me through this. So, because Mikey Scars was a capo, right? He yes, was a capo with them. Yes, he and was. And he, he, uh, there was some uh, stories about him potentially Being, was lined up to be the next boss. Yeah, that came a few years later okay. after he and I were extremely close, which we were not at this time. But Gamarano is my guy. So basically, as Johnny's under indictment the entire time that I initially met him. So I'm living in a halfway so house. So when you guys met at the Marriott the in Manhattan, met, Right. Okay. They did very good, by the way, with your research. The day I meet him, he's under indictment in Louisiana, and I'm in a halfway house, so I'm still in the Bureau of Prisons custody. I'm living in Bedford-Stuyve, Brooklyn, at a halfway house. And he and I have our first meeting. And he approached me like, look, I heard you're a big Money maker, you know what you're doing. You're a kid to keep his mouth shut. I checked you out, even going to the guys in the Midwest. They have nothing but great things to say about you. I want you to meet Joe Watson. We'll get hooked up with this. So ultimately, we do. But then when I'm doing the Wall Street gig now, they're one problem after another that I got to keep bringing him into. So now he's involved in pretty much everything I'm doing. The problem that he makes, his mistake, is now he's going away. And he doesn't tell anything about, tell anybody about anything he's doing with me at all, which is a cardinal mistake. His contention was he invested his own money in this legitimate enterprise, and he doesn't have to explain it or report to anybody. God. Okay, that was a crock of shit. It might have been your own money, but you can't have a more illegal enterprise than I'm running. In fact, Robert Morgenthal, the Manhattan District Attorney, said if this firm did anything legitimate, it was by accident. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so everything quote. was. That was his quote. If this firm did anything legitimate, it was by accident. Wow. Now, I would challenge the, the statement, but it is what it is. That was So now Mikey, Mikey Scars comes in. No, it's not that simple. Patrick, back up. So now John. You're teasing us. Te yes. You're teasing us with Mikey. Well, I'll get to it. So John tells, I said, John, what do I do with you going away? I mean, we have beefs every day. There's another problem here. I mean, look at the way we live our lives. I mean, this is not going to be kept quiet. He says, okay, he says, there's a guy in Staten Island, which I don't want to mention his name. He's still very active today. You see him if there's any problem. I said, okay. Then he comes back to me. He says, don't see him. Do you know who Mikey Scars is? I said, yes, I do. He said, do you know him? I said, no. He says, maybe you see him. Then he comes back another day and he says, you're not going to see him. Just see my nephew. I said, just see your nephew. <laughs> your nephew's not even a street guy. How's that going to help me? 
what, what, what does that mean? Anyway, he leaves it like that with me. So, of course, as predicted, we have 20 problems the minute he leaves because everybody's around mm -hmm. and everybody's earning and everybody's yep. doing something. And there's going to be a lot of beats as a result. So now I have an issue. What the nephew decides to do is rather than put it on record with our family, the Gambinos, he goes to the Bananos because he's got a friend there to try to represent this. So now I'm like, are you out of your mind? It don't work that way. You're going to create problems for your uncle, problems for me. This is crazy. But he stayed pretty steadfast with that. Okay. So now I'm at a firm, and that firm is doing an initial public offering. Okay. There's an IPO coming. And actually, let me back up. So now, with that said, I try to sever myself a little bit from that problem because I know this kid just made a major mistake. You don't go to another family. That was a mistake. So at this point, Michael sends two guys to come see me, two guys that I know very, very well. Made men or no? Uh, one's a made guy. One is a associate. associate. Yeah. Big guy, though. So I meet them at a restaurant right next to my office. They call me, and when they call me, I said, who is this? And they uh, said, it's Heckle and Jekyll or whatever stupid name they use. So they said, we're next door at the restaurant. Come see us. So I go there, and there's a vestibule there. And in the vestibule, we don't actually go in the restaurant, and one of them says, listen, you guys are doing an IPO. That IPO's got to come here. It's got to be to us. I said, well, the IPO's not going to you. It's going to Johnny. He says, you can't do that. I says, listen to me. Johnny's writing me letters. He's calling my house. He's telling me I got to be strong. He's only as strong as his friends are on the street. I can't give you this. He said, well, this is going to be a problem. So I said, well, I don't know what you want to do. You want to roll around right here in the vestibule? You're not getting it. I don't know what you want to do, but you're not getting it. That night, I go to a club in uh, Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. Michael's at the bar. And I went there specifically to see maybe he'd be around. I was going to approach him, but I knew he'd approach me. So he sends one of the guys that I saw in the vestibule over to see me, and he says, Mike wants to talk to you. So I see Michael at the bar. This is 1996, and he says, you're crazy, man. You go to see my two thugs like that, <laughs> my goons, and you tell them what you told? You don't need to see anybody else. You're with me. You just see me. Like, you think this guy Johnny could help you? Number this one, is the Leonardo. This yeah. is, okay. Number one, he's old. Number two, he's not well-liked. Number three, he's a drunk. Number four, when he comes home, he's moving to Florida. You know, he can't do anything. Who's he talking about moving to Florida? Johnny Never G. Around. Okay. Johnny G. Yeah. So now I got a skipper telling me I'm directly with him. So I got to make a decision. How much more loyalty can I continue to support Johnny G with now yeah. that Michael himself is telling me this? So I'm going to guys that I respect their opinion, wise guys. What do I do? Everybody's saying, you don't understand Michael. He's going to be a boss one day. You're in great shape. This guy's going to be a boss. You're doing the right thing. But now, technically, I'm betraying Gamarano, mm -hmm. which I'm very uncomfortable about. Am I willing to die over it? I don't, maybe. I mean, I love the life. I wanted to be part of this life. This was made for me. And I didn't want to answer to anybody, so I had very lofty goals. I didn't want to be a skipper. I want to be boss. <laughs> you. I mean, again. You can't, though. You're half Sicilian. You're not 100%, right? I don't have to be 100%. You have to be 100% Italian. I thought you used to be 100% Sicilian no, back in the days. No, 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 no. Okay, so you have to be 100% Italian. Doesn't matter if you're Sicilian. You don't even have to be 100% Italian. Your father has to be Italian. 
It, it, they change it, though. Yeah. It used to be... Your mother could pretty much be anything, and your father has to be Italian. But, it but I'm 100% Italian. Okay, so you're... Okay, so I thought it was 100% Sicilian. My point is, I don't take orders very well. But so you, if I'm going to be in this, I want to run it. Were you really <laughs> ambitious enough to one day want to be a boss, or no? If it was there for the taking, yeah. yes, I would have. Okay. Because I, I think I understand the biggest mistake the mob ever made. The biggest mistake ever. Besides the fact that there's no loyalty and there's just... Uh, they made such a mess of it. The problem is, if they ever, ever really implemented, and this is supposed to be organized crime. I mean, look how organized it was with Maya Lansky and Lucky Luciano. So, you know, everybody says when Gotti came, it's because Paul was a businessman. Paul was a businessman. He didn't know the street. First of all, of course, Paul knew the street. He was indicted and did time for hijacking. So don't say he wasn't a street guy. Maybe, you know, he forgot those roots and he became a businessman, but that's exactly what was needed. Without a doubt, a businessman. Not Nobody was flipping at the time. How do you explain that? So what happened is now with the new regime, nobody's providing for these families. So if Patrick is gonna go away for Sal, then Sal better do the right thing for Patrick's family. And with nobody doing that and nobody implementing that and instilling those values and you're left for the Philistines, why would you stay loyal? Why? Why would you? So do you understand? So Omerta was impossible. In my world, this, and I'm going to use the word conformity a lot. If, are you familiar with Joe Valachi? Of course. Okay. So Joe Valachi, let's say, was the first rat. Sure. But what Joe Valachi did is he gave Mario Puzo and Francis Ford Coppola the platform to understand a world they never would have understood. And because of all that information out there from Valachi, mm -hmm. now Puzo's able to write a book. So once Francis Ford Coppola comes into this mix, and he's such a family-oriented guy, he brings the family element into organized crime and the mafia. And what happens is everybody wants to be part of this. So the, the, the wise guys may have not acted yeah. the, way, uh, the way Marlon Brando acted, yeah. but now they wanted to act that way. So you want to talk about art imitating life or yeah. life imitating art? There's the reason. So now you have a whole new spectrum of what this is supposed to be about. But everybody forgets this, Patrick, so let me r remind you of something. There was no federal presence. There was no Fed investigation. As early as 1960, you have J. Edgar Hoover stating publicly there's no such thing exist, as the mob. Yeah. So if you're relegated to local cops, you keep them on the payroll, you stay off the radar. Yeah. It was pretty easy. Then once Rudy starts bringing in, you know, uh, the, the RICO Act, and now you have that. He changed the game, though. Without a doubt. But yeah. before him, Bobby Kennedy really did, too, because now all of a sudden there was an attack on the mob. Well, the and the only reason in my world why Bobby Kennedy ever went after the mob was to keep it quiet about how his brother became president. There's so a lot of different speculations there. There's a lot of different speculations there because of all situation with they, they were worried about Illinois with Dewey. They needed those 7,000 votes from dead people. To they help needed them. West Virginia. They really didn't need Illinois, by the way. That was going to happen without it. And then they hated the fact that there was that uh, you always a favor type of mentality. And Bobby had the bigger ego than John, apparently. Uh, but at the same time, there's a little bit of link with uh, Marilyn Monroe and women and Sonny. There's a lot of different stories to it. But, but the point is, once the attack yeah. on the mafia started, now all of a sudden, over. and it's publicity now, and it's publicity nobody needed. And Joe Bonanno's book also didn't help, by the way, that, when he wrote that book. That, right? Joe Colombo with his Italian civil rights campaign, and then, of course, John in 1985. So what shot did this have? So if it's going to be an imminent prison sentence yeah. for everybody, 
provide for the families. Do you think guys are flipping because they're afraid of jail? These guys, these are men. Interesting. Nobody's so afraid of jail. They were, they're afraid if, of not providing for their families. So if you, uh, and that was one of uh, Mikey Scar's concerns as well when he talked about in the interview with Trevor McDonald. He says, I called the guys. I'm like, wait a minute, I need food for my, for my wife. And the boss said, uh, get her on uh, welfare because right. she needs to get on. I said, what do you mean get her on welfare? I can't get her on welfare. And then that's when he flipped. They show so, that in Goodfellas too. Yeah, so the concern is if you can't support your family, the person's going to flip. Well, that's just one, you know, part of it. Did you follow Tomaso Boschetta's story as well or yeah. no? Similar story there as well. Slightly different there because of, uh, you know. The point is a yeah. wise guy takes an oath to put this, okay, Cosa Nostra, yeah. ahead of God and their own family. I mean, only an imbecile would actually do that. You may make that profession at your induction ceremony, but do you think anybody really believes that? Do you want to put this thing, Cosa Nostra, ahead of your child, ahead of your God? I mean, where's that going to get you? So it's a fake statement to begin with. But my point is, if they ever implemented something to provide for the families, and there would have to be a formula, you know, based on your contributions, Earnings. based on where you it's, are. It's still, somebody still would have flipped though. Without a doubt. Yeah. But my point is, it I, been think, less. I think it would have yeah. been contained. No, it would have been less. Okay, so now you, you get with Mikey Scars. They tell you he's going to be the boss. He's a cop at that time. You're going in. Is this still 99 when you're netting 30, or uh, what year is this with Mikey Scars? No, this Scars? is 96. So now it's 97, and the FBI comes to my house, knocks on the door at 6 o'clock in the morning, and there's two agents there, and they tell me I'm going to be assassinated. They tell me there's a contract on my life, and it's coming from the west side, which is the Genovese family. So I said, can you tell me why? And they were like, we don't know anything about you. We're just obligated to tell you this. From informants, there's a contract on your life from the west side. I said, and you can't tell me anything? He said, supposedly it's some stock deal that went bad. So I said, well, I'm not involved in stocks, so I don't even know what you're talking about. They said, look, we're just giving you the heads up. So obviously I took this as a credible threat. So in my mind, I believe this is Gamarano from prison Got plotting to kill me, knowing he can't use the Gambino family to kill me, so he had to go to the west side. That's what I believe now. So now I have a choice. Do I sit inside like a hermit? Do I change my lifestyle? I didn't even move into my new house yet. And I only had, I had two children. They were babies and I'm still on parole. I got a probation officer to answer to. So now I call her and I tell her, I guess I'm obligated to tell you this, but the FBI just left here telling me I'm gonna be killed. She said, well, if you have any problems, you know my number, I'm licensed to carry a firearm. Great. So now I'm left saying, what do I do now? So obviously I go to Michael, I explained to him what's going on, and I said, would you think I was crazy if I told you I think it was Gamarano? He says, no, I wouldn't think you're crazy. I think you're very, very smart. You've come a long way in these last few years. And we were left to believe that. So yeah, I guess this is when I started realizing, you know, I don't want to say how tough I am, but you know, at the end of the day, I wasn't going to change anything. I made the, the decision that this is my life, that I am in this, I'll do what I can to protect myself. I have my crew, I'll do whatever I can, but I'm not gonna change anything. And again, I hadn't even moved into my home yet. I hadn't even bought the new brokerage firm that I was going to buy. And this was just really at the start. So we got off, we did deal after deal. I did all of these other businesses. Things were going very, very well. And then Pete Gotti gets pinched in 2002 at some point. And then at my restaurant, we're having a birthday party for Michael. I want to say that was June 2002. 
After Michael left his party, he arrived home, and I think at 5 o'clock in the morning, that morning, he got picked up and pinched. So now he was arrested, too. So now, ironically enough, at the time where Michael is now in jail, Camerano's now back on the street. So where do you think that leaves me? And this is where everybody betrays me. I get bounced around from guy to guy, nothing but issues, nothing but problems. 9-11 happened. The internet bubble in March of 2000 happened. Things are no longer robust and good. And now Gamarano's playing his games. And now this is when everything goes bad. And then ultimately in May of 2003 is when I agreed to flip. Okay, so at this point, a bunch of stuff is happening. You're getting to a point where you're gonna have to cooperate because, you know, Gamarano's coming out. You're worried what's gonna happen if he comes out. This is, you said, 0203. It's right after 9-11, it's 0203. Uh, so, but pre-talking about what happens when you cooperate, when you're making 30 a year, I'm assuming you're probably partying with the best of the best. I'm assuming you have some stories. I'm assuming you're on celebrities. I'm assuming, you know, you probably are being invited to some exclusive parties. What, what was the life like at the time? Yeah, well, with the boxing company, which was really my baby, you know, that's what I guess gave me, you know, a platform to do other things. You know, we were in negotiations for about six months with Sugar Ray Leonard's company. He had formed Sugar Ray Leonard Boxing, and he was throwing his hat in the ring with promotion firm as well. So we had a few meetings with him. We hit it off very, very well. And then that became meeting with Tommy Hearns and, and his management to try to acquire the Kronk name out of Detroit, Kronk Boxing. We were negotiating with them. Simultaneously, we had acquired the rights. I signed a license agreement to Gleason's Gym in Brooklyn. And we had opened up a, an additional, like a satellite operation of Gleason's in Long Island, where we had Gleason's too. So what we were utilizing this for was a stable of bringing up young upcoming fighters. We could keep a pulse on them. We could bankroll them, finance them, try to, you know, be instrumental in their careers. So, you know, during that and, you know, doing a lot of traveling to Vegas, Southern California, uh, the Foxwoods in Connecticut, you know, we were always hobnobbing with a lot of celebrities. So Joe Montana had approached an associate of mine where he was doing a lifestyle magazine called Joe Montana's In the Red Zone, which was a lifestyle sports magazine. What year is this? This was 97, I want to say. Is he still playing for the Chiefs? He's not. No, no he's no, no longer he's playing. No, he's done yeah, now. he's done. So he came to me, he came to our office, and we had acquired, I want to say, probably upwards of 50% of the rights to that magazine. So the magazine had launched, we had run you know, two consecutive months, it did pretty well. And then essentially, Paul Anka had introduced me to a guy by the name of Bernie Human. Bernie Human only managed, he was a, a manager, he only managed two acts in his entire life. Muhammad Ali and Siegfried and Roy. Wow. And he's the one that landed Siegfried and Roy, that big deal at the Mirage. Hmm. Paul Anka's best friend is Steve Wynn, the owner of the Mirage. Sure. So when, at the time when we did the Montana magazine, we wanted to approach Ali. We wanted to try to do something with Ali. Now, Anka had had his own vision in mind. What he wanted to do was because of the relationship with Bernie Human and the Mirage, as well as you know his intimate information on the Rat Pack and the special effects that they utilized for Siegfried and Roy, Paul Anka wanted to do this entire show where he brings back the Rat Pack back to life to, I guess with holograms, to perform with him utilizing the special effects of Siegfried and Roy. 
So Bernie Human agreed to meet with me. We met at the Four Seasons in Manhattan, and we, and we were trying to get that show off. The prerequisite that I gave him is I said, you got to give me Ali. Everybody told me that Ali was untouchable. You could never get to Ali, that he'll never do anything. With that said, Bernie was able to get me Ali, and we did the Muhammad Ali, I think it was for his 50th birthday at the time, the commemorative special magazine for his 50th birthday, which was coming out simultaneously with the release of Will Smith's film, Ali. So we had that deal in the pipeline. Do they, do these guys, did Montana, did Ali, did their camp at all know that you're an associate with the Gambino family or I not at all? I don't think initially, but over time, yes, because Paul Anker absolutely did. It's one of the reasons why Anker fell in love with me. In other words, Anker was a kid. When I say kid, he was in his mid-20s to early 30s during the time of the Rat Pack, yeah. but they took him under his wing. I mean, he wrote songs for Sammy Davis. He wrote My Way for Sinatra. So Anker would be out there. Legend. I mean, he's a... So he saw us, me and my crew, in reverse. In other words, now he was Sinatra, and we were the young guys around him, and that's what he loved. God. So I traveled all over the country with him. In other words, we either promoting boxing matches or hanging with him. He was going through a pretty ugly divorce at the time, which nobody knew about. So he was traveling with his girlfriend. You know, I mean, he let me into that world. I mean, I became very, very close. But as a result, I was forming a, a, a sports media entertainment company that I was ultimately going to take public, and I made him you know, like um, an advisory board member and then ultimately the CEO of the advisory board. So he was able to bring me a lot of properties that ordinarily I not wouldn't a have access though. to. He wasn't a shareholder. He was a warrant holder. Warrant holder, okay, there's a difference. So he did not own stock, but he owned warrants. He's protected if it's warrants, so it's, it's, it's slightly different than having shares. So when I knew that the heat was on me and the pressure was yeah. coming, what I decided to do was take all of these properties that I owned, anything that could be deemed media, entertainment, leisure, and even roll up the restaurants yeah. that I had into a publicly traded shell. I bought a company called Jaguar Investments. I had 35 million shares. Jaguar was trading at $6 a share, and this was my get-out deal. So now this is after the internet bubble, which hurt us greatly in March of 2000. We're entering 2001. I needed about, well, we had more properties. We had a Grease remake starring Britney Spears and Justin Timberlake in the year 2000 when nobody even knew who these kids were. So they were, they were, uh, they were, Get out of here. they weren't popular yet, but they were known. So we had, we had Justin Timberlake and, and Britney Spears signed to do a Grease remake, one. We had a contract with NBC to do the first reality golf circuit tournament, which at the time, the only reality show out at the time was Survivor. So NBC loved this model. We had the rights to John Travolta's next three films. We bought a small production company, a guy by the name of Jonathan Crane, and he had the rights to Travolta's next three films. This is at a time where he had just released Swordfish, just to put a timeline to it. So we had what we deemed- Do you like Swordfish? That was all right. That yeah, was crazy. Right. I, I, I'm with you, go ahead. That would have been the first film we did. So at this point, you're worth about a quarter of a billion. If you take that 35 times six, that, that's 210. Yeah. But that's without all the other assets. Remember, I owned a brokerage firm that managed a half a billion dollars so in assets. So at your peak, what was your net worth at your peak? I don't peak? know, I don't know. It's Over too quarter, fragmented. Though. Yeah, I mean, if you go the value of the brokerage firm and all the paper that I own, I mean, at one point, we had done four penny stocks literally pennies, 
in, in January of 2000, all four of them were trading north of $30 a share. A penny stock to 30? Yeah, I mean, they, because they were all technology driven and now you're I got talking. You. I mean, we bought the, uh, the Yahoo IPO. It was up 100 points in one day. This was a crazy time. So you, it was so hard for me to qualify it or quantify the amount. Makes it sense. really was. It was very yeah. difficult. Makes sense. Why didn't you go legit, though? Why, why didn't you go legit? I was what? planning to with this Premier deal, but I waited till, you know, the heat got to the point where it was inevitable that I was you think You think you would ever go legit, though? You, you know how everybody says I was planning, like, you know the movie, what's that one movie? I love the movie, Carlito's Way, where he gets, I said, I'm not doing that. You know, I'm not doing this. And then he's taking his nephew. The nephew gets shot up at this one bar. And he's like, well, you know, one day we're going to go live. I'm telling you, we're going to go live this place. And then, you know, Benny Blanco from the Bronx shows up at the end and says, hey, remember me, Benny Blanco from the Bronx? Of course. So everybody says they're going to leave, but are you really going to leave the life? Patrick, here's the way I'll frame it to you, okay, in, in all honesty. Yeah. Because I'm probably the biggest hypocrite in the world. In other words, I believed I was somewhat legit. I did quality companies. People were making money. There were no victims. It's not like we were robbing pension funds and, and widows or, or uh, burning Madoff with a Ponzi scheme. I wore a suit and tie every day. I got in earlier than anybody. I stayed later and I worked and I tried to develop. The crimes that we're guilty of, enterprise corruption, racketeering, money laundering, bribery, the furtherance of organized crime, tax evasion, all guilty as charged. But I could always shave my own face in the mirror and sleep tax soundly at night tools. because I never robbed people. That wasn't my game. We weren't doing fake companies and hurting the public. There were no victims at the time. The only time that victims developed, and it, there was a manifestation of it, but the only time that manifested into victims was after the internet bubble in, in March of 2000 because then everything came crashing down as well as the heat. So this enterprise, this premier sports media and entertainment group that I tried to do, tried to build, would have been the get out deal, but the mob was still a very, very stronghold in my life. If I was gonna be in this, I was gonna try to be boss. So to say legit, no, I never thought about going legit because the mob was always a big stronghold on me. Did you ever have any direct dealings with any of the bosses or no? Yeah, Louis Daydon. He was the boss of the Lucchese, acting boss of the Lucchese family. He was a very, very dear friend. When we did the Paul Anka launch party, he grabbed my mother, pulled her aside. He said, your son, Mrs. Romano, is a rose among thorns. And I'll never forget him saying that. Wow. And then he grabbed Michael and he said, Michael, when are you going to straighten this kid out? If you don't make him, I am. So, yeah, I was very liked. And, and Louie, I did a lot of business. Well, I did some business with him. I shouldn't say a lot. Mostly moving money around. And I loved him to death. He's doing life sentence now in Lewisburg, I believe. Or Allenwood, excuse me. So, 03, you decide to cooperate. What happens next when you cooperate? I didn't decide to cooperate. You were forced. <laughs> no, you're never forced. I made a decision. Okay. But I was greatly betrayed. And that's what encouraged my thinking to co cooperate. Michael had already flipped. And I knew Michael, uh, you know, reluctantly would have to tell them everything about me. I knew scars. Michael yeah. Scars, yeah. I knew I had a, an investigation that was ramping up from the district attorney's office in Manhattan. So I knew I had state problems. I knew I had Fed problems. And I knew the heat was closing in on me. I would have done my time. I never in a million years would have agreed to cooperate. What really encouraged my, my thought process on cooperating is the betrayal. In other words, I was doing business with a very famous producer who's also one of the largest real estate holders in the United States, and he's about two blocks south of here. So unfortunately, I don't want to get into his name, but he's a big guy. And he was corrupt, and we were doing a lot of things together. And that being said, he was in bed with another fella, 
And I will mention that name, a guy by the name of Eli Weinstein, who that name meant nothing to me. I had no idea who that is. Anyway, I met with a skipper in the Gambino family, Capo, who pulled me in and said, you're doing business with this Norton Herrick guy? So I said, yeah, he just gave me a $6 million mortgage on my house. In other words, I had paid cash for my house, and when I knew the heat was coming in, this was a good time to pull money out of it. So I said, yeah, I'm doing a lot of business with him. He's got like 10 million in cash up with me. He just gave me 6 million for my house. He said, okay, he says, he's got something that this Eli Weinstein wants. We need you to go to him and tell him to give Eli Weinstein back everything. I said, how do you even know who this guy is? And how are you putting him with me? What do you know? I had another meeting and a guy had, a, another wise guy, and that guy had a post-it, a little yellow post-it, and it said, the name of this producer. And he said, Sal, I want to talk to you about this guy. I said, you're another one. What do you guys have to do with my guy? He's mine. How does anybody even know this guy exists? So this Eli Weinstein, give it back. Tell him to give it back to him. Okay. I go to this guy and I said, look, this is what I've been told. You know who I am. You got to give, blah, blah, blah. You got to give it back to him. He says, I'm not doing anything without me talking to my guy and my guy's in Chicago. I said, well, you're going to have to give me a name so we can make our people talk to him. Anyway, to make a long story short, I was then met with the same capo, and he said, Sal, you know this guy that you're shaking down for all this money? Back the fuck off him. So what the hell are you talking about? Now you're protecting him? Are you guys crazy? What are you talking about? Now you fast forward to today, today. The last order of business that Donald J. Trump did as President of the United States is he granted a presidential pardon to Eli Weinstein, who received a 20-year sentence for embezzling $300 million from the Jewish community of people he saw every day. So if Trump wanted to commute a sentence, you'll do that for somebody that's wrongfully accused, you know, harshly judged, or a myriad of reasons that you could justify. This guy embezzled $300 million from his community and got a presidential pardon as a result. He did six years on a 25 or 30 year sentence that when he was out on bond, he committed a further crime and robbed $45 million regarding an investment in Facebook while he was out on bond. Trump, excuse me, he did not give him a pardon. He commuted his sentence down to an immediate release. And that was the last order of business that Trump did as he was walking out the door. Who the hell is this guy? <laughs> <laughs> no, nothing. All I know is that's that's what my research showed as early as a week ago. That's insane. Well, what a, what a connection of the stories. And by the way, if you're saying the big producer, real estate, I mean, you pretty much gave them away. I mean, it's uh, the name. But that's a whole different story. I won't say the name. I'll say the name. Go for it. Norton Herrick. Okay. There you you go. knew that? If you're saying here local, yeah. So it's not going to be hard to figure that part out. But anyway, so and I was doing a ton of business. He was one of my largest investors. I mean, we had a lot of, you know, we had Paul DeJoria, who's the owner of Paul Mitchell. We had the Bellsberg family up in Canada, the Seagram's family. I mean, this is the kind of money that we were around. So we always did legit deals. And that's why I was able to stay under the watchful eye of the regulators for so long. These are the type of deals we did. But this Norton Herrick guy, I mean, there's a, Patrick, it would take me three hours to explain that story. He and I were joined at the hip. He had a publicly traded company. I was working it. From time to time, he asked me to drive the price down of his publicly traded company. The reason for that is 
things were, it was a tumultuous market. He believed the banks would give him more favorable rates if they believed that he was imminently looking to file chapter. So, I mean, this goes on and on and on. And then I recorded tape conversations of him. I was trying to extort him to get the deed to my home back. He ran and the guys that were with me or I was with are now betraying me for him. And it goes on and on like that. Everybody betrays everybody in that world. It's a very, uh, uh, the only guy that from, uh, I had a meeting with Sonny Francis. I don't know if you know Sonny. Of course, you know Michael's father, Sonny Francis. I know who he is. I had a meeting with uh, Sonny. Three times we met, because I was trying to do the interview. And every time, no. Last time I went out there, we took a crew of five of us, six of us, camera. And I took him to an Italian restaurant. I'm driving him to the Italian restaurant. He's 102 years old. We we're moving him with a wheelchair. But the guy had the energy of a 20-year-old. He could talk. So what do you think about uh, such and such? Great guy. What do you think about Lucky? He's your era. You're from his era. Fantastic guy. What do you think about Ben Siegel? Great guy. How about Meyer? Great family guy. Was Meyer a billionaire? I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> so, so he was so, he did 55 years yep. in jail. 55 years just because he said, this is the life I chose. He stuck to it. And allegedly, he was innocent on that original charge. He was innocent. Yeah, he was innocent on that. Other things he was not, but on that one charge, they got him. They wanted to kind of just and uh, frame him And then he kept violating. Yeah, and then, but, that, but you know, on that one charge, yes, he, he was innocent on that one charge. So all three, you cooperate. You chose to. At this point, what happens to life from all three to today? Did you stay low-key intentionally? Like, listen, no. I'm just going to, what, what did you do from all three? Quite the opposite. Uh, you know, I opened up a legitimate, they relocated me to... San Diego, California. Uh, most of my partners were Persian, like yourself. They almost got to the point where I could speak uh, fluent Farsi at Get this point. Get out of here. I mean, everybody was Iranian, so I did business with all Persians. Ate at Persian restaurants. They staked me. We were able to get lucky with a couple of companies. And then, you know, again, I'm the luckiest guy in the world. I'm living in Rancho Santa Fe, California. And at the time, oil is skyrocketing. Right away, I started investing in oil and gas deals. And then my partner, who went into the program with me, unfortunately, he gets the bad luck of being sent to Des Moines, Iowa. Well, the great thing about Des Moines, Iowa, is right now biodiesel and alternative energy is in favor, and he's in the corn capital of the world. So we were able to invest wisely in energy and then hedge wisely in alternative energy. And we got off. We did very, very, very well again. No trouble since 03. Yeah, there's been trouble. Nothing I want to talk about this time, but yes, there's, there's always trouble. The government is constantly coming after me, constantly. So, so how do you make money today? Or are you fine right? Right now you're low-key, you're not really doing anything business-wise. Yeah, nothing that I would want to get into publicly. Okay, got it. So just more low-key today. More, so, so, so are we going to see more of Sal Romano out there? Is there going to be more stuff about you out there? Or are you more or less trying to just keep it low-key, and you did this interview just to do this interview? No, I, I, absolutely not. I've been asked to do interviews for the last, I don't know, close to 20 years, constantly. Everybody that ever heard my story says, when are you going to write a book? When are you going to write a book? Because I'm only giving you a certain amount of everything yeah. that I have in the arsenal. And I think right now, with the situation that I'm in, it's about controlling the narrative. I don't want stories being written about me or told without me at least having a say in, in how it's framed, because I'll only frame the truth. I'm a devoted, devoted Devoted, devoted Catholic. 
I love my faith. I, I pride myself on being somewhat of a novice theologian, but I, you know, I, I, my book is basically a correlation of my spirituality and my faith along with my past, culmination to where I'm at today in life. So yeah, there's a story to tell, and after many years of contemplation, I believe now's the time to tell it. And no better than uh, to launch with you, sir. Well, it's, it's great to uh, have you on here, I am sure. This is gonna steer the pot with a lot of different questions and comments and people are gonna reach out and they're gonna wanna have you back on to address other questions and maybe we'll do a part two here uh, since we only had about 90 minutes here together and I've really enjoyed talking to you. Uh, unique story, different angle. Yeah. It, it sounds like you were one decision away from uh, having been a professional guy in the financial world for decades and you would have made a lot of money, but that industry kind of kept pulling you in because it sounds like you had a little bit of aspirations of wanting to be a boss. There was something very attractive of life. And, and I'm not a hypocrite, I wanted that life. Without a doubt, I wanted that life. Because if I wanted to go legit, I could have easily gone legit. Yeah. I had the talent, the work ethic, and the brains where you, I could have done very brains. well. Yeah, the, the brains, three times you talk about being at the office at 7.45 and the way you explained you know, blind pull, the way you explain the reverse, you know, the, that's not something that everybody can explain, which means, uh, you know, having started in 1985 with Lehman's for three years, you were with them, it's not like you were there for three or six months co-calling for some other guy. My first week on the job, Lee Iacocca was there, leaving Ford, trying to borrow, to raise a billion dollars from the company in order to start a company called Chrysler. Yeah. This was my first week on the job. So yes, I've had the exposure of everything. You met Lee Iacocca? No, I was a baby, but okay. I was on premise when he was yeah, there. I mean, he's a, he's a legend. Did you watch Ford versus Ferrari? Yeah, or of course. What you think about the story in there with what he did, with negotiating with Italy and Enzo and all that? Smart. Yeah, crazy stuff. Anyway, Sal, thanks for coming out. Thanks my for pleasure. being a guest on Bag Team, and I really enjoyed my it. My pleasure, Patrick. Yes. Take care. Thanks for having me. Anytime, anytime. Complete different perspective of that life, Sal Romano, how he made his money and what happened to him. By the way, if you enjoyed this interview, give it a thumbs up and subscribe to the channel. I got two other videos I want you to watch, both podcasts that we recently had on. One is with Sammy DeBull Gravano and the other one is with Michael Francis. You're going to enjoy both of them, but click on one of these two. If you enjoyed this topic, I think you'll enjoy one of these two podcasts. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.